0: welcome uh pastor mike bradley and the again the leader of lcmc and uh the message that is just very very dear to his heart it's i think the message that god has anchored you in and so thank you for being here today thanks love you brother love you too good morning saint timothy's grace to you and peace from god our father and his son our lord and savior jesus christ amen amen (laughs) I want you to know what a joy it's been uh, for my wife, Debbie, who's here with me to just be here this weekend, my first time to San Jose and uh, this, in my young life, my, my first time. And uh, we've really enjoyed being here. We really have enjoyed Pastor Jim and Marilyn and, and their dog, Tucker. If you haven't met Tucker yet, you need to meet Tucker, uh, once-in-a-lifetime experience. And I, I want you to know how much I love your pastor. I do, and how much I appreciate you, Jim, and not only, yeah, amen, and it's not just because we get to minister together, and, and he's been uh, a word of wisdom, a word of counsel to me, uh, as, as we do work on some things together, but I, I count it a privilege to call you a friend, so good to be here with you, and it was really fun meeting uh, Bishop Dan Selbo and Mary the other night, uh, Bishop Dan and I share a couple of loves. Uh, Together, we, we both love Jesus, and we both love going to the golf course. Now, it's, it's not because we enjoy golf, but it's the fact that on the golf course, the name of Jesus is being called out so often, and, and we just feel God's calling us to go tell folks of this God whom they're calling out to. So I don't like going, it's a burden, but I love Jesus, and I'm willing to go. <laughs> uh, greetings to you from your uh, sister congregations in Lutheran congregations in Mission for Christ and working alongside the North American Lutheran Church. We're, we're so happy um, to uh, count you as a member of both associations. Um, one more person I want to draw attention to, and I, I just have a slight critique of your worship, if, if I might. And, and it's, it has to do with this. The coolest person in a band without doubt, is always the drummer. <laughs> in this case, that would be Tim. So my, my slight critique, my encouragement would be, there, there's a song back in the 60s. Now, I'm, I'm an old rock and roll drummer, Tim, back when I had hair. And in the 60s, there's a song some of you might remember, probably not too many because you're holy people and you love Jesus, but it was called Inagata Davida. De Vida. And there is a 17-minute drum solo in that song. So I think the next time you sing, Open the Eyes of My Heart, maybe insert that 17-minute drum solo into the song. It will release the presence of the Holy Spirit. And um, that's enough said about that. <laughs> So our, our text for today, as was mentioned, Uh, that I want to share this message is from Colossians chapter 1, the first 11 verses. And the name of the message is called Being a a Safe Place. In this first chapter of Colossians, Paul mentions the gospel, or mentions good news three times. So what is this good news? Or as Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, what is this treasure we've been given? Well, this good news, the treasure is that all we have to offer the world is the good news of what God has done for us that we can never do for ourselves through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have some great news and some great ways this news blesses us. This news about what God has already done. Not anything you and I have to do, but what God's already done for us that we can never do for ourselves through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and some of the benefits that are, are included in this as we hear this good news proclaimed, as we receive this good news, is that we can begin to live a life, for instance, that is at peace with God. Not a life that just knows about peace with God. And what a, what a blessing that is, and how often we might overlook it unless we happen to be that person who does not know peace. Or living a life that that knows about forgiveness of sins, not just knows about it. Or or living a life that knows we have received God's gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, not just a life that knows about it. Or or you could continue this theme, a a life that knows God's love for us, not, not a life that just knows about it. This is good news. This is a wonderful treasure. Unfortunately, there's too many people here in San Jose and in the Silicon Valley and around the United States who don't want to hear the good news you and I have to share. And it's not about the news so much as it's about you and me. You see, the reigning stereotype of Christians in the United States is that we are angry and arrogant people. What's it mean to be a Christian? Oh, those are those angry and arrogant people. Oh, those are those people who are judgmental and condemning. They're always finding something wrong with us. Or or those are those people who are hypocritical. They live one way in church on Sunday morning and another way out in the community of Morgan Hill, San Jose, or Phoenix, where Debbie and I are from. Or they're they're polarizing people. This is the reigning stereotype of Christians in our culture. Arrogant and angry, judgmental and condemning, hypocritical and polarizing. And because of that, so many people don't want to hear anything you and I have to say. And and when people hold on to this stereotype, most often they're not going to be reasoned out of it. They're not going to be talked out of it. What's going to be most effective is for them to meet someone. To, to meet a Christian like you or like me who perhaps is not like that stereotype. Oh, he, he or she, well, they're not arrogant at all. Or angry. I thought that's what Christians were. Boy, he or she, they, they don't judge me or condemn me. They, they love me with that unfailing love we were just singing about. Wow. Wow. And, and, wow, they're not hypocritical. They're they're pretty, he or she's pretty authentic as a person. And when they meet that person and experience that that kind of life, it begins to tear down the negative stereotype and that begins to open the eyes of their hearts to begin to hear the good news, consider the good news, and perhaps receive the good news. So our question this morning is what might it look like to live that kind of life, the kind of life that I call being a safe place. Now, this, this is different than, than some of the safe space talk we hear about in our culture on college campuses and places like that. Being a safe place is about Jesus. And, and I want to read you a, a story about the encounter with a safe place person can have on someone's life. The weight of the water jar was light in the woman's hands as she made her daily pilgrimage to the well. That would not be the case on the return trip home. She would need to shift the weight of the jar, now filled with water from one arm to the other. The trip would be taxing and arduous. However, the weight of the water was nothing compared to the weight of sin and shame she carried everywhere, every minute, every day. But this day would be different. This would be the day God's improbable provision of forgiveness of sin and freedom from shame broke through in her life. On this day, the sin and shame that so heavily weighed her down would be lifted, all because of an encounter she was about to have with a man an encounter that would change her life forever, one that by all rights should never have occurred. He he was male, she was female. He, He was a Jew, she a Samaritan. According to cultural norms, they should never have been talking, let alone having a conversation that became so intimate, so personal, so quickly. He engaged her simply and innocently enough. I'm tired and thirsty, he told her. That was it. Though a holy man, a rabbi, he did not address the sin and shame that marked her life and drove her to the well alone each day. He simply engaged her in conversation, one person to another. She may have initially questioned his intent and felt uncomfortable, but there was something different about this man, something different that kept her there and kept the conversation going. As they talked, it became apparent There was, in fact, something extraordinary about this very ordinary man. His very persona and presence was inviting and accepting. He was a man who wanted nothing from her. That that was the first. Men always wanted something. The woman and the man spent time together. They talked. He listened. He cared. In the end, her very ordinary daily appointment became a divine appointment. An encounter that left her so transformed, she ran back to the people who had ostracized her and told them that they had to come and see this man. This man who had told her everything she had ever done. She had found someone who fully knew who she was and still accepted her. Someone who was not scared away by her past and who seemed genuinely interested in her. Someone who related to her with a combination of grace and truth that was healing to her soul. For the first time in her life, she had encountered a man who was safe, and it absolutely transformed her life. For the first time, she encountered, she didn't just hear about, she didn't just read about, she encountered a man who was safe. And it forever changed her life, and not her life only, right? If we were to go on and Read John chapter 4, verse 39, John chapter 4, which this story of the woman at the well, as we know her, is taken from. In verse 39, we'd read this. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. This woman, just sharing her story of her encounter with Jesus, her God's story transformed an entire village. Your God's story can do that. There's people out here in Morgan Hill. There's people in San Jose, where some of you work. There's people, <coughs> excuse me, in the play places that you go to, uh, the beach or, or wherever it is you might go to play, the neighborhoods in which you live, who need to hear your God's story. They, they don't need to hear my God's story, they don't need to hear Pastor Jim's God's story. This village didn't need to hear a rabbi's God story. They needed to hear this very ordinary woman's God story. And God used it to change their lives. You have a story that somebody needs to hear. A story that can forever transform their lives. All of this because she meant a man who we might say was safe. Now, the woman at the well wasn't the whole Uh, wasn't the only person in Scripture who needed this safe place encounter. Nicodemus needed it. Uh, Thomas, as we read his story, Doubting Thomas, he needed it. And at one time or another, we have all shared some aspect of these people's lives. Every one of us struggles, for instance, with temptation and shame. Except Tim. But the rest of us struggle with temptation. And his wife's shaking her head. No, that's that's not true. That's not right. We all struggle with temptation and and sin, do we not? We all have questions we want to ask, but we're afraid to give voice to these questions because we might be lectured or we might be ridiculed or shamed just for asking the question. Is there really a God? Where in the world was God when that happened in my life? Why didn't God answer that prayer that we prayed? We all have these kinds of experiences and these questions, and we all struggle at some point with disappointment or doubt in our relationship with the Lord. We all, like Nicodemus and Timothy and the woman at the will, need a safe place where we can give voice to these things without being judged or condemned. We all need a place where we can build authentic relationships and friendships that matter. Friendships in which we can struggle without judgment, ask the real questions, engage in the real dialogue, and get to know Jesus without being rejected or discarded, lectured or shamed. We all need a place where we can be our true self a place where you have the freedom to not pretend, where you don't need to wear a mask in order to be truly welcomed and truly accepted. We all need a place where God's, uh, the truth of God's word is not watered down, but where the grace of God influences where, when, and how that truth of God is shared. And that combination, grace and truth, is God's healing combination which can bring his healing upon people's lives. And we all need a place where we can live and minister with others who who make it a safe place to fail. But we're not identified by that failure. All of this and more is what can be found in the life of a person, an individual, or a grow group, or a congregation who have set their hearts on being like Jesus, a safe place. So, well, what's it mean to be a safe place? Now, there's no verse, there's no passage that says, thus is a safe place. It's simply looking at the life of Jesus. So being a safe place is a metaphor designed to help us reflect on the life of Jesus and what it can mean to live as followers of Jesus who are experiencing God at work in our lives, helping us to know and to live out of that new identity in Christ we've already been given. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're told by Paul, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. It doesn't say they, they will be. It says they are. He or she is a new creation. But God can be at work in your life and in mine, helping us to come to understand more fully what that new identity is and live out of that new identity wherever in the world we set foot. Now, before unpacking this metaphor a bit more, there's a few things I want to make sure to tell you so you don't misunderstand what this idea of being a safe place is about. First of all, only Jesus is a safe place 100% of the time. That means this side of heaven, it will be an ongoing journey for you and I. And, and, and related to that is I want you to know that, that it's essential to understand that we will fail. If we set our hearts on being a safe place for one another, we will fail. In 44 years of marriage, it may uh, be hard for you to believe, but I've actually failed my, life, my wife twice. Each week. <laughs> okay, each day. Okay. But, but we, we will fail. We'll, we'll not say things that maybe would have been helpful, right? And we'll say things that are definitely not helpful. We'll maybe do things that we ought not to do or we'll not do things that would have been helpful to do. We will let one another down. But one of the great things about God is He uses even those failures to work in our lives and to help us grow into what this idea of being a safe place can mean because when I do fail uh, Debbie I can come to her and say honey I'm, I'm sorry I, I was wrong period no, no comma but because anything that comes after that just negates what you just said honey I was wrong please forgive me and she's had to more than twice in our marriage say yeah I, sweetheart I forgive you In Jesus' name. A third thing we want to make sure to understand is that being in a safe place may not always feel safe. If the operative word is feel, F-E-E-L, it may not always feel safe. Because I don't know about you. Well, actually, I do know about you because I know about me. Even when a word of truth is shared with us with as much grace as possible, it can still sting. It, It can still embarrass us. It can still hurt us. I remember one of the first times I ran into this in my young Christian life. I was in the United States Air Force back in the early 70s. I just returned from Southeast Asia, and uh, I was stationed in southwest Oklahoma. And uh, my faith was, was coming alive, and uh, uh, my roommate was a, a Christian and, and his best friend on bass was a Christian. And, and as my faith started to come alive, they said, Well, you know, you play a little bit of guitar. Why don't you come play with us at the Christian coffee house downtown? Because back in the late 60s, early 70s, Christian coffee houses were all the rage. Some of you might remember. So I did. And then one day there's a knock on my dorm room on bass, and I open it, and it's my roommate, Billy Bob Fred Joe Choctaw Pitzer. That was his legal name <laughs> on his birth certificate. Billy Bob Fredjo, Choctaw Pitzer. Hillbilly from West Virginia. We just called him Billy Bob Fredjo. And his best friend, Stan Kellner. Billy Bob Fredjo was tall and lanky. Stan was short and squat. Looked like maybe he could play linebacker. Not for the, the Rams or for the 49ers, but looked like he could play linebacker. They were best buddies. And here they are knocking on my door. And I'm thinking, well, Billy Bob Fredjo, this is your room. Two, what are you knocking for? And they said, can we come in? And I said, sure. And they came in and we small talk, small talk, small talk. And then in a very, very grace-filled way, they said this to me. Mike, we've loved having you play uh, guitar with us down at the Christian coffee shop. But one of the things we noticed is that you're more interested in meeting girls than glorifying God. Now, in my, I'm sorry, sweetheart. I'll have to ask forgiveness again after the service. In my mind, I'm thinking, and your problem is, what? Of course I want to meet girls. <laughs> and they said, well, here's the thing. We're there to glorify God. So we think you need to step off the worship team for a period of time and just continue to grow in your relationship with God. And we'll help you. We'll be there for you. And so I did what I usually do when somebody speaks a word of truth to me that stings. I smiled. Hey, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. They left. I closed the door. Not lightly. And then I started going back and forth. Who the heck do they think they are? Talking to me. Of course I want to meet girls. What's wrong with meeting girls? And I just complained and cried. And over the next few days, the Holy Spirit really began to convict me of sin, as we heard in our confession today. And I knew they were right. And I had to repent. Some months later, they came back and said, wow, we're really seeing a change in you. You want to rejoin the team? And I said, I'd love to. That moment, in that moment, if you had asked me, well, did Billy Bob, Fred, Joe, and did Stan feel safe? I would have said no. But they were because they brought God's worth of truth to bear in a very grace-filled way on my life, which led to the work of God taking place in my life that I am forever grateful for. So being a safe place may not always feel safe. And then finally, viewing Jesus, the disciples, or Christians today as being a safe place depends on what definition of the word safe you use. In Webster's Dictionary, there's five definitions, only the fifth one. Uh, helps our discussion here, and that definition is 100% dependable and trustworthy. We can count Jesus as our safe place person because we can 100% of the time depend upon him and trust him to love us, to forgive us, to tell us the truth, to heal us. Now, being a safe place is not just some kind of optional or peripheral teaching to our life and faith. It is absolutely essential, and and for at least a couple of reasons. First of all, it's essential in creating an atmosphere where we can experience God's work of growing and maturing us in that new life and new identity that we spoke about earlier. It's essential in creating an atmosphere where you and I can be appropriately vulnerable and transparent with at least one other person. And that's all it takes is one, two, or three other people. If you have those kind of people in your life who you can be vulnerable with, you can be transparent with, and you can trust them to hold that in confidence, you can trust them to still love you, you can trust them to still believe in you, that can have an amazing transforming impact on your life. And, of course, that work is God's work. But but having that one, two, or three safe place people in your life creates an atmosphere in which you can experience God's work. And secondly, this this idea of being a safe place is essential because it, it helps us tear down that negative stereotype I mentioned earlier. Let me talk about atmosphere for just a minute. It's essential to be aware that the atmosphere in which you and I live and minister um, is important because what's in the air makes a difference. What's in the air makes a difference. I remember the first time I thought about this, I was backpacking in the Bighorn Mountains uh, in northern Wyoming with my son-in-law and some of our kids. And it was about 10 years ago. I think I was 60 years old at the time. And we hiked into the Big Horns. We were going to base camp at 10,000 feet. And then we were, we were going to summit a 13,000-foot peak. We didn't have any 14,000-foot peaks up that way. But uh, Bomber Mountain, we were going to summit that the next day. And on, on the way up, we passed Three Sisters Lakes, a, a series of three lakes that were fed by this great mountain stream. We set up our tents. We went to bed. The next morning I woke up. I'm usually the first one in our family that wakes up. And again, I'm sixty years old at the time, so and, and we were carrying small tents, not big tents. And so that morning I literally crawled out of the tent. And I stood up and, and things creaked and moaned that didn't used to creak and, and moan and things cracked that didn't used to crack. And and I remembered looking back on that the series of lakes and and, and stretching and just taking in a big, a big, deep breath of mountain air. Fresh, clean mountain air. And when I did, my whole body came alive. As soon as I did that, though, I flashed back to a memory of a few years before that, or a number of years before that, actually. I was in the slums of uh, then Bombay, now Mumbai, in India. And I remember the morning when I woke up there. And I woke up and I stretched and took in a deep breath. But it did not make my whole body come alive. It attacked my body. It it burned my nostrils. And it made my eyes water. What's in the air makes a difference. Not only physically, but emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. It makes a difference. For instance... Um, If we can go back to that that slide that had the picture on it of of that guy, and I thank you. Have you ever had this experience? You're in a meeting, or, or you're at home, you're in a meeting at work, or here at the church, something like that, and somebody walks in the room, and the atmosphere in the room is absolutely changed for the better just because that guy or that gal walked in the room. Well, this happens when this guy... and Uh, And the photo with me walks in the room. His name is Joe Johnson. He's a Lutheran pastor who lives in Oregon now. Those of us who have known him for years, he's he's been my mentor for decades. Those of us who know him have come to call him Sweet Papa Joe affectionately. Because when Joe Johnson steps foot in the room, the love of God and the joy of the Lord walk in with him. And you 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 can breathe it in it changes the atmosphere in the room. Have you had the opposite experience perhaps? Somebody walks in the room at that family reunion or in your home or at work in a meeting or, or uh, on a, in a band like, like Tim and the, and the guys up here or, or in a church. Somebody walks in and, and the atmosphere changes. But it, it's not for the better. It's downgraded. Because when he or she walked in the room, anger walked in with them Judgment and condemnation walked in with them. Sinful pride walked in with them. What's in the air makes a difference. In the same way, we could say that the atmosphere uh, can impact us physically when we breathe in that air, and it can be helpful or harmful. What we breathe in emotionally, relationally, and spiritually can impact us too. If we were in a retreat setting or, or maybe had a few nights of meetings here at the church and we, we could do like a longer seminar on this whole topic, one of the things I might do at this point is say, Let, let's do a uh, short exercise. Now, we won't do it this morning, but we could. And, and we might even move into small groups and, and we might ask something like this. If you can, think of a person in your life, at least one person, who for you has been a safe place. Now, not everybody's able to do this because not everyone's had a safe place person in their life. Or it might actually be a place. For instance, a safe place for me, an actual place, was my grandfather, the, the barn on my grandfather's farm in Iowa when I was growing up, uh, a, a farm that I would go to in the summers where I learned to drive on an old farm all tractor and I learned how to slop the pigs and get the eggs from under the chickens without getting pecked and slopping the pigs and 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 grandpa taught me how to milk the holstein cattle by hand and and squirt milk into the cat's mouth over there in the corner and but, but my favorite part of the farm was the barn and and the hayloft <coughs> excuse me in particular and i used to love being up in that hayloft on a rainy day and and the, the door to the hayloft would be open and the rain would be falling but I was there, safe and sound, fresh smell of alfalfa uh, in my nostrils, uh, going back and forth, holding on to the pulley in the ceiling that, that carried bales of hay back and forth. and That was my safe place. What, what's your safe place? Who is your safe place? And, and we might ask one another then, think of that person, and you wouldn't have to share their name. But as you think of them, think of the characteristics or qualities that made them a safe place. What makes he or she a safe place for you? And, and you might tell each other things like, "Well, well, he he unconditionally loved me. She she never judges me or condemns me. Uh, he believed in me before I even believed in myself. Uh, she is forgiving." Time and time again. He's willing to be inconvenienced just to talk to me and, and to listen to me. Uh, she knows how to rest and how to help me rest. He makes room for disappointment with God in my life without shaming me for that. She lives an authentic emotional life. She's not a fake. She's not a phony. She's authentic. These kinds of characteristics and more uh, could be what you used to begin to build a list of safe place characteristics. And you can do a couple of things with that. First of all, you can look down that list and you can pray and you can say, Lord, is there anything on this list you want to speak to me about? And it might already be true in your life. You, you might be a, a, an unconditionally loving person, but maybe God wants to upgrade your ability to be unconditionally loving. Or the Lord, through the Holy Spirit and his word, might want to convict you that, "Eh, yeah, I can be kind of judgmental and condemning at times. Ouch. Don't like to hear that. But yeah, that's true. God, please transform that in my life. So you can use that kind of list to listen to the Lord and to, to perhaps consider where and how he wants to work in your life to increase your capacity to go be that safe place person for people out in the community. Or you could use it as a list to begin praying for in the community here at St. Timothy's. Lord, when people walk uh, walk on our campus or walk in the sanctuary or one of the other rooms, Lord, uh, we pray that you would just fill the air, as it were, with your unconditional love. We pray that you would fill the air with your forgiveness. We pray that you would fill the, the air with your... And go down the list and just begin to pray that. And, and, and wouldn't it be great um, that St. Timothy's, which already has an amazing reputation in this area, uh, has added to that reputation. Oh, yeah, St. Timothy's, that's that Christian church that's it's actually a safe place, not unsafe, like some. Now, there, there's a lot more that we could say about this. Let, let me share this, this uh, uh, last quote before I close. All these characteristics that we might identify as being a safe place could be summed up in this quote from a poet. She writes this, Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but to pour them all out, just as they are, chaff and grain together, knowing that a faithful hand will take them and sift them, keep what's worth keeping, and then, with the breath of kindness, blow the rest away. Being a safe place, working definition for you. Being a safe place is learning from the life of Jesus how to most effectively relate to people so they'll have the opportunity to be impacted by the love and power of God. And we we could talk about that for a while too. But let me share a prayer with you that you can take and you can begin to pray if you'd like. You can begin to pray and God loves to answer this prayer and as he would begin to answer this prayer in your life, it will manifest in your continuing growth in being that safe place person for somebody else. Here's the prayer and it's from church history. This is not original with me but in in the great awakening uh, in the the, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, the leaders we purported to have prayed this. Lord, do whatever you need to do in me so you can do whatever you want to do through me. Just begin to pray that prayer. And then, then watch and listen. Um, I, I know a high value here at St. Timothy's is getting in God's word. And, and you use this method, this soap method, uh, some of you have already used it, some are beginning to use it, where you look at Scripture, you observe what Scripture is saying, you seek to hear God in, in terms of the application, and then the last one's prayer. Right? You begin to pray that in. Pray this prayer, and then begin to watch and listen as you're in God's Word. Uh, begin to watch and listen as you're having conversations with people, and you maybe hear something that, oh, that's more than just a conversation piece. I think that's something God wants to say to me. And then begin to pray. Lord, do whatever you need to do in me so you can do whatever you want to do through me. Lord, help me be that safe place for others that Jesus is for me. God bless you, St. Timothy's, and thanks again for the chance to be here with you this weekend.